Hey folks, before we get started, want to thank this episode's sponsor, The Free State Project. Now, way, way back in episode 34, back in September of last year, I was joined by uh, one of their very fantastic board members, Jeremy Kaufman, to discuss all the great work that FSP does. But if you want to get involved, folks, with FSP, FSP is a historic mass migration of more than 20,000 people who have pledged to move to the great state of New Hampshire for the sole purpose of liberty. Now, if you're a current New Hampshire resident, you can join the FSP right now. And what they, the whole goal of the FSP is really to constantly Concentrate numbers in a single low population state, which of course New Hampshire, the free staters are maximizing their impact now as activists, entrepreneurs, community builders, and thought leaders. We already have 24,000 people who have pledged to move to New Hampshire and almost 5,000 already have. So folks, please, if you want to do your part, go over to fsp.org forward slash join. I promise you won't regret it. fsp.org forward slash join. And if you're already in New Hampshire and you haven't done this yet, well, please go ahead and do it because you can do it as a member of New Hampshire, FSP dot org forward slash join and now on to the show brian nichols you're a great man with some great ideas a great podcast do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people <laughs> yes he's full of common sense and wisdom brian nichols here on the brian nichols show welcome to the brian nichols show your source for common sense politics on the we are libertarians network today i'm joined by easily one of the best of the best matt kitty welcome to the brian nichols show hey brian it's good to be with you by the way let me take a step back and say i love what you're doing i love the conversational style and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas i love the fact that your show's doing what it does and, and this is how we win the future the Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. And we're back. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you for joining us for, yes, another fun-filled episode of The Brian Nichols Show. And, a, and an interesting and fun episode. We'd never done one of these, uh, you know, analysis episodes before. Uh, but it was so important to do it this week because Bernie Sanders was on the Joe Rogan Experience. And I'm sorry, Joe did not give Bernie any difficult questions. He, he pretty much lobbed as many softballs his way as he possibly could. Um, so I was thinking, you know, it's it's so important to maybe do an episode here that would break down the the interview that, that Bernie Sanders had with Joe um, and and to really show the, the danger behind a lot of the, the stuff Bernie's really promoting. So today I wanted to bring on Max Gulker back onto the show from the American Institute for Economic Research. I, I could not think of anybody better than Max in his economic experience to really, you know, go into the policies that Bernie's promoting and how dangerous they are, not excluding uh, or not limited to rather minimum wage, corporate tax loopholes, education, socialism, and, and a lot more more. So with that, please enjoy today's episode and be sure to share with family and friends, especially those who are still in that Bernie bro camp. They need some help. And this is the episode to definitely point their way. So with that onto the show, Max Gulker from AIAR here on the Brian Nichols show. Very good, Brian. It's, it's election season. It's always a little surreal, <laughs> but it's never, uh, never boring. It, it went by so fast. I mean, like, honestly, it feels like just yesterday I had you in my show um, and we were in the middle of football season and you were, you know, busting my, my chops about my Cowboys. Um, but uh, but here we are. We know we're, we're in August of 2019 and, um, you know, we just recently got really into the thick of the, the election already, which is hard to have even imagined. And here, you know, we had the Democratic debates uh, that started off just a couple of months ago. And and of course, you know, returning to the, st- the scene is is one Bernie Sanders and Bernie just does not seem to go away. And we were talking before we started to record. Bernie just comes across as the grandpa that you don't want to go see on vacation. Um, <laughs> but but nevertheless, you have to see him at least, you know, once every, I guess, in this case, four years. So uh, Grandpa Bernie decided to take a trip to look hip and cool. And he was invited on to the Joe Rogan experience, which I mean, I'll give credit where credit's due. Joe has a lot of people on his show from all different walks of life, all different you know, ways of thinking. So I'll, I'll give him credit for having Bernie on to discuss issues, um, in, in particular talking about Bernie's campaign. But I will say I was a little disheartened because Joe didn't really press uh, Bernie on, on really anything. And I think the reality is that Joe is... 
as good as Joe can be in terms of bringing on people and giving them a voice, um, he he does not do a good job in pushing people when they are like-minded. And I, I think we're all kind of in that same camp. So that's why I wanted to have you on, Max, an economist from AIER, to kind of do the pushing for, for Joe. So what we want to do today is kind of walk through some of uh, the, the clips from, from Bernie. I, I spent... Uh, I spent too much time going through this, this it just, it was excruciatingly painful as a libertarian to listen to this, this interview. Um, but I, ladies and gentlemen, Max and I did this for you. We went through, we watched this interview so you didn't have to. And, uh, we picked out the clips that, uh, you know, are probably the most important. And the first one I wanted to, to first really kind of kick things off with, um, was discussing minimum wage. So, uh, last time we were on, we were talking about, uh, the, economic impact of the Green New Deal. Um, and, you know, since in between now and then, I, I said, hey, Max, let's let's kind of focus on some of these economic policies of the Democratic Party. And, and you know, lo and behold, here Bernie comes on to Joe Rogan. He gives us a, a multitude of things to, to go after. So first and foremost, to start things off, here's Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan. It's going to be a quick uh, little clip to start, and then we'll kind of dissect as we go through. So here we are, Bernie Sanders. Every idea, Joe, here's the bottom line on this thing. Every idea that I've just talked to you about is supported by a majority of the American people. These are not radical ideas. Let's let's take these one step at a time because you mentioned a lot of important things there. Let's go with the minimum wage thing. Now, the argument that I've heard about the minimum wage being raised to $15 an hour is that there are entry-level positions for high school kids, for people that are just getting their feet wet in the marketplace. They're learning how to work. They're learning. They're making some money after school. That they that if you charge or if businesses have to pay fifteen dollars an hour to people like that to to entry level people that they won't be able to stay open. Now, first and foremost, Max, I, I'm gonna just let you kind of take what Joe said there because I think that was a terrible way to to frame the question about fifteen dollar minimum minimum wage. So, can we just kind of first give a very brief history of what the minimum wage is and where it came from and why we have it today? I believe now, now you're pushing me on my economic history, Brian, which is not my specialty, <laughs> but I, I believe, did it come out of the depression? Where's Phil Magnus when I need him? I was going to uh, say, I mean, more or less, and correct me if I'm wrong, I had uh, Steve Horwitz on my show back a while yeah. ago to talk, touch on this too. And I mean, really it was started out as a means to, to keep uh, right. minorities and, and I guess the, the less, the, the less thans in society from being able to get into the job force because it sets an artificial barrier to entry in terms of your, your ability to bring your skills to the marketplace and then have a return on investment from an employer standpoint. Exactly. It's going to hurt the lowest skilled workers. Um, it's going to create some amount of unemployment. Um, there are people who, you know, there, there's lots of um, literature and economics where professors try to, you know, go out and look at the data. And when there's, you know, when Seattle sets its minimum wage at $15 or when any number of things happen. And frankly, the economy is a really complex thing. And there's a lot of studies that sound beneficial to people who support a higher minimum wage and plenty that don't. And we can't pretend like, um, you know, I, I personally don't like cherry picking that literature from where I'm coming from, imposing a blanket rule of something like $15 an hour across the country is just indicative of this, this rut, for lack of a better term, that our entire country is stuck in, where we ask the question, what rule is the president going to impose to make this better? What, you know, single rule for our extremely complex economy? And you know, garbage in, garbage out. You can't get like a, a very good answer to a question like that. Yeah, for sure. And I think like you, you hit the nail on the head. It, a lot of the problem is that um, people more in the progressive camp. And I, and again, for, for people who want to kind of hear your story, listen back to our first episode we had, which I'll obviously include in the links here. Um, but, you know, people in a progressive camp tend to look at uh, government as a means to accomplish their very, you know, good intention policy goals. The problem is, is that they don't, take into consideration the negative ramifications and consequences, and in most cases, unintended consequences of those policies. And in the case of a minimum wage, it's actually hurting the very people that's trying to help. Yeah, we, we want to think in simple cause and effect terms. And as economists, one of our biggest challenges in communicating to people is that um, sometimes the wider macro economy just doesn't work in that intuitive way because it's this network of billions of actors and 
decisions. And it's very hard for people to understand that. So these ideas sound appealing when he says them. And I'll add that, you know, this is somebody I tremendously disagree with, who I find often unpleasant. I don't like the way he looks at the world as sort of villains and good guys, but (laughs) he's a serious person with policies he believes in. And we have to take him seriously, or it's going to be to our own danger if we don't. 100% 100% agreed. Actually, it was funny you, you you say he has a negative way of looking at the world. This actually goes right into the next part I wanted to, uh, to start to share here. Um, this is Bernie. Now, we started getting to talk about uh, corporate tax loopholes, and more specifically, he starts to address um, the, the the likes of, of the, the millionaires in the world, and especially those here in America, looking at like Amazon and those who are not paying, quote-unquote, the, the, the corporate taxes. So let's uh, let Bernie speak for himself. I think... Look, the minimum wage has not been raised in 10 years. It is now $7.25 an hour, which is clearly unacceptable. Um, the cost of housing, California, all over this country is rising fairly rapidly. People can't afford health care, <clears throat> can't afford college. I don't think it's asking our employers too much to pay at least $15 an hour minimum. So what is, what is the goal of major corporations in America? to be deregulated as much as possible. So in some cases they can pollute our water, our air, our environment. It's also not to pay any taxes. Trump campaign, as you'll recall, he said, my tax plan is not gonna benefit the wealthy. It's gonna benefit working people. Well, it turns out over 10 years, 83% of the benefit at the end of 10 years goes to the top 1%. That's what these guys do. I remember, I'm called the ranking member on the budget committee in the Senate. And some guy came forward representing, I don't know, one of the big business organizations. Uh, And this is their agenda. Their agenda was to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and to do away with all corporate taxes. So what you have right now, that's, that's what greed is about. They want it all. So as you indicated, you have a company like Amazon, owned by Jeff Bezos, who happens to be the wealthiest guy in America, worth about $150 billion. Amazon paid zero in federal income taxes. And it's not just them. Dozens of corporations paid nothing or very, very little. And on top of all of that, you got these guys able to stash all over the world trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars in the Cayman Islands, in Bermuda, in Luxembourg, and other tax havens. That is insane. And that has got to end. So let's um really quickly, Max, let's kind of dissect that first part here, discussing um, the the offshore tax havens, because you know, obviously Bernie's looking at these these big corporations as the, the bad guys. He's looking at, you know, there's no reason that, that Jeff Bezos should have X amount of billions of dollars. And even if they do, there's no way that, or I guess there is a way, but there's no reason that they should have a means to hide their money, if you will use the word hide very loosely, in offshore accounts outside of the United States for which it cannot be taxed. So can we kind of start, you know, discussing and dissecting first and foremost this this belief that these corporations do not pay any in any taxes? And I guess number two, maybe can we discuss why anybody who's in the position like a Jeff Bezos would want to put their money in offshore accounts away from the U.S. Treasury to get their greedy hands on it? Well, I mean, somebody like Jeff Bezos is going to lose a dramatic portion of his money if um, if he doesn't do that. And I, and I don't actually blame him for that. You know, I'll start by saying you know, several years ago when Sanders came on the scene, I kind of thought, well, here's a guy I really disagree with. Um, but, you know, he seems to have guts and he seems to have principles he sticks to. One of the first red flags for me that these cheering crowds of college kids seem to be getting to his head a little bit. And this just shows that Washington does this to anybody is he came out with this thing a couple of years ago that sort of had this acronym, this bill that was cleverly titled basically the stop Bezos act. And it was about employee pay. And I thought, you know, singling out somebody like that is in the classical sense, what I would call illiberal. Um, I think it's, it's actually, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but I think it's symbolic of a dangerous attitude. And frankly, look, billionaires can take care of themselves, but Sanders uses billionaires the same way Trump uses Mexicans, or none. <laughs> That's an interesting way of, uh, of framing that. Um, this is a group who is other than you, 
who is the reason that you are having problems. Help me, help me uh, and help the audience here understand the, the reality behind the myth of these, these corporations not paying federal taxes. Cause I know, I know for a fact that's not true. Cause when I go to, you know, cash out on Amazon, I get the, the notification I'm paying, you know, yes, sales tax, which is obviously a state tax, but they're obviously paying some way, shape or form a tax, whether it's not necessarily to the federal government or it's not income tax in particular, they're paying taxes because in America, yeah. you know, there's no way that the government would, would let anybody not pay taxes. That's, that's how they get, you know, yeah. their, their streamlined in, in funds. So can you kind of explain what the, the misconception is in this talking point that these corporations aren't paying taxes? Yeah. You know, I, I was joking with an accountant friend earlier today. I was telling her I was doing this and I should bring her along. Um, but, um, without, you know, straining my understanding of the tax code, these are, you know, when you think about Amazon, this is not Amazon, a unitary entity making singular transactions with people and hiding its money. This is an enormous organization that is, you know, making a huge number of transactions within and without um, the company. The idea that they're not paying taxes, that they're somehow not exposed to taxes at all is just not true. I can't quote you a rate. I can't, um, you know, are, are they hiring lawyers and looking for loopholes? Sure. But, uh, but that's a misleading idea to say that they're not paying any taxes. And by the way, um, I'm perfectly in favor of a simple tax structure where everybody pays the same thing. Because when, when you get to negotiate with individual companies like Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo wanted to do with Amazon in New York, uh-huh. that just becomes another arm of government power. We're going to treat you better than everybody else. So close the loopholes. That's great. But don't pretend Amazon's not paying any taxes and, you know, respect the complexity of the real world a little bit more than that. Let's go. let Mr. Sanders go ahead and finish his thought here on All corporate right. tax loophole, shall we? All right. All right. You know, it, it, that is what you're touching now on the heart and soul of the tragedy of American politics. How does it happen that on issue after issue, the American people, the working class of this country want something, nobody pays any attention to it, but billionaires want something and it gets done. And that has to do with a corrupt political system. So right now, if you are uh, the Koch brothers or some multi-billionaire you say to the leadership of the Republican Party, and in some cases to the Democratic Party, hey, guess what? We're prepared to put hundreds of millions of dollars into your campaign. Hundreds of millions of dollars coming from one or two people. And here is my agenda. I want tax breaks. I want a trade system, which will enable me to shut down in this country and go to China or Mexico and pay people there two bucks an hour. <laughs> I want to be able to do more pollution because I don't like all of this you know, money I have to spend preventing uh, pollution of the air or the water. That's what I want you to do. And by the way, I'm worried about the deficit. So you may as well cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. How many Americans actually believe that we should give tax breaks to billionaires and cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid? Very few. That is, talk to Mitch McConnell. Get Mitch on the show. That is exactly what he believes. <laughs> so, so let's just kind of tackle that. So the first, uh, the first part I think is, is very ironic is that Bernie doesn't seem to, to have the ability to grasp his own cognitive dissonance and that he's acknowledging that part of the problem is that these billionaires and millionaires can use the power of their, their dollars to then use government to influence, uh, right. in a way that's going to give them a, a favorable advantage in the marketplace without elect him and he won't let them do that. Exactly. But then also forgetting the fact that, okay, well, maybe it's the fact that Bernie there, it's the fact that there's a whole government there that has this power in the first place. That's the problem. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I wanted for just for the general, these bad billionaires are causing problems worldview. I want to unload on Bernie for this, but I do think that the majority of people out there share a little bit of this misconception and it's, you know, when you're living in a band of 20 hunter-gatherers, if something bad happens, it probably means a bad person did something bad. But when you're in an economy of billions of people, there can be bad outcomes without single bad actors. And it's counterproductive and corrosive in a lot of ways to you know go out on a witch hunt in that way. And the reason why 
you know, he's saying working class people aren't getting the things they want, is that the federal government is the wrong unit to be effectively providing these things. That doesn't mean we as a society can't take care of each other. In fact, we're being distracted from coming up with, with creative solutions to do that by this thinking that everything has to be done by, you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or, or whoever it is. It's a, it's a mindset that it's crucial we escape from, but it's, I sometimes don't see the line of sight to doing it. Well, and it seems to be like this is an overarching theme throughout pretty much the entirety of the the Democratic Party right now, especially with those who are seeking the nomination for their their candidacy for to be president of the United States. I mean, not only Bernie on stage saying this, but you, I mean, no, here he's on Joe Rogan, but you have people like him and Elizabeth Warren and, and God bless her, even as great as she is in foreign policy, people like Tulsi Gabbard, who are out there saying the exact same rhetoric, uh, you know, these evil millionaires and billionaires. Where Where is the disconnect coming from? Well, again, it's a very, um, the idea of, of bad people are at fault. I have a plan to fix it. Honestly, Brian, it's coming from us because this is our expectation of the presidency, that the president is going to go out and solve problems. And mm-hmm. we need to start looking at it in a different way. And, the, you know, the, the example of this really is Elizabeth Warren, who you know, people think of Sanders as kind of the left flank of this campaign. Um, I would argue that Sanders is considerably to the right of Elizabeth Warren. Um, Sanders wants to turn the dial like all the way over to the government. He wants to have much higher taxes and much bigger government programs. But that is the same state economy fundamental paradigm that we've been operating in. Elizabeth Warren wants to start telling companies what to do and things like that. That um, that I think is is a whole nother level. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be very frank here. Um, yeah, I consider Donald Trump probably the worst president in my life, and I'm astounded that there are several Democrats who I'd chance four more years happily over. Not happily, but without hesitation. Begrudgingly. Yeah. Um, it's uh, and and it shows that we're stuck at this point where we expect all of these problems to be solved and we simply have the wrong tool to solve it. Uh, and, and it's, I, I don't know what it's going to take, but, um, but, you know, I would just love to start seeing more bottom up creativity from people. And frankly, that can get started while we still have this bloated federal government. We can start showing people that we can do things better. Um, I would love to see a lot more of that. And yet, conversely, uh, going back to, to Mr. Sanders here on Joe Rogan, uh, he decides he wants to start pushing for even more uh, inflated government. And this is referring to how, number one, we're going to make education uh, universal and free, but also how they're going to um, do absolute, complete student loan forgiveness. So let's listen to, to Bernie talk to, uh, to Joe Rogan here about the, uh, the his proposals for free education. I mean, how I'll, would I'll you? tell you exactly how we'll pay for okay. it. Okay. And we pay for Every idea that we have, we pay for, and we pay for. First of all, that's a lie. But we'll go on. By understanding that today we have massive levels of income and wealth inequality, and we have in many cases the wealthy and large corporations paying nothing or very little in taxes. Here is the issue in terms of education. Forty, fifty years ago, you were an average American working class person. You graduated high school. Especially if there was a union around, you can go out and get a job and make it into the middle class. You could own your own home. You could send your kids to school. You lived a pretty good life. You made it in the middle class. 40 or 50 years later, there's an explosion of technology. There's a growth in unfettered free trade. And it is clear now that most people, to make it into the middle class, are going to need a higher education. That's college or maybe it's technical training in order to become a skilled worker. It is insane to me to deny working class people and lower income people the opportunity to get that education because the cost of college has soared. So all that I say is that 100 plus years ago, the American people said that we should have free public education. I went to a public school. My parents didn't pay a nickel. Went to kindergarten. I went through the 12th grade. Pretty good education in Brooklyn, New York. All that I'm saying is the world has changed. 
and a high school degree is not good enough anymore. So expand that concept through college. Now, guess what? 50 years ago, do you know how much the University of California, a very great university, cost in terms of tuition? How much? Virtually free. What's it now? I don't know, but it's pretty high. It is high. It's thousands and thousands of dollars. So you had great universities like the University of California, uh, City University of New York, state colleges all over this country, where tuition was virtually free. And then what happened, for a variety of political reasons, states and the federal government started cutting back on higher education and put more and more burden on the student with higher and higher tuition, which is where we are today. So all that I'm saying is in the year 2019, 2020, if our working class kids are gonna go out and get the jobs that are out there, they need a they need a higher education, which should be tuition free. In terms So so let's pause right there. So there's a lot to unpack, obviously, Max. So starting Boy. off, first and foremost, he starts discussing uh, one thing I thought was interesting. It was that he mentioned specifically, uh, and you don't really hear Bernie talk too much in terms of, of trade, but he, he subtly snuck in how free trade started back in, in last century, basically. And that started to be a detriment to the workforce. So it's funny because, you know, Bernie kind of has this, this populist rhetoric that's at the core of his campaign um, that very similarly mirrors that of Trump when it comes to looking at how the United States interacts with our, our global um, society. You know, he looks at you know the, the, the free trade as a negative. He looks at the, the free moving uh, of people to and from America as, as a negative because it's, it's damaging, if you will, air quotes, very big air quotes, the American worker. So let's start there first and foremost. What's Bernie getting wrong about this idea of free trade? Well, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work. We're really proud of at AIER um, about um, Trump's trade policy and the tariffs he's imposed and basically showing that those income, personal income and corporate tax cuts that Trump gave out in his first year of his presidency, like two thirds of them by now have been negated by his tariffs. So basically he's just charging a free trade tax. Um, and this is, again, a hard issue to talk to people about because it's easy to see a laid-off worker or a plant that's closed. Um, it's not necessarily easy to see, you know, people say, oh, you, you want these people to lose their jobs so you can have, you know, slightly lower prices. But it's not you having slightly lower prices. It's everybody. And those effects reverberate throughout the economy and um, end up, almost any economist will tell you, in an outcome where more people have jobs than, um, than under the tariff. Again, these are things that you can't point to something tangible always and tell and, and say, see this thing, this factory. Um, and that makes it quite a challenge. But, um, you know, I, I always tell people that on trade, like, you know, it, this is the issue where like Jeffrey Tucker and Paul Krugman are like in lockstep. Like, <laughs> that, that's a know, weird expression to hear out loud. Eight or nine percent of economists agree about this. So, so let's now look at the the part that Bernie brings up, referring to how basically high school education isn't enough in in today's society. Um, now, he seems to make the argument that the reason that the high school education isn't enough anymore is because. The, the world is changing and that, you know, in order to advance as a society, these these people in the workforce have had to go to college in order to gain the skills. But, you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily, you know, trying to speak with a cookie cutter approach, but I dare say that things seem to be relatively, you know, okay and we're advancing pretty quickly back through the 20th century when not everybody had a college degree, I mean, we went to the moon, we landed on the moon, we have rocket scientists, you you saw the, the greatest growth in American economic history pretty much throughout the 20th century, um, but now we have a more educated populace, and yet inflation's at an all-time high, we have a, a stagnating workforce, our our true you know workforce participation rate has been pretty steady around the, the mid-50% to, to 60% range, so... Obviously, there's there's some type of disconnect that's taking place currently in terms of how Bernie's approaching education as a value to the workforce and what reality is. So can you kind of approach, uh, using your economic lens, where Bernie's getting things wrong? Yeah, I do think that more access to education for lower income people is 
in some ways an imperative that we have to think about as, you know, society and people living together here. But this whole idea of free college is actually one of my favorite topics to push back on and try to make some headway with my friends on the left because um, there are some pretty clear-cut problems with it. And I actually just sent you an article I wrote about it, which yep. which you can link to in your magic way with, uh, <laughs> with the podcast episode when it comes out. But so the problem, the first problem with saying everybody should go to four-year college and it should be free is it utterly fails to target the problem. It doesn't target the people who need it. It includes them, but it includes a whole lot of other people. It doesn't target the types of education that are needed because nobody has a financial incentive to pick those types of education, right? And, and so it's, it's, again, this, like, what one-sentence rule can you offer to change things? And, you know, you wind up with this completely whacked-out um, outcome where that also, frankly, imposes this upper-middle-class value system on, well, everybody should do this. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody shouldn't do it. Um, but there are actually really exciting, innovative ways to, to fund education that don't end up in this student loan nightmare we have, which, by the way, is um, another beautiful product of the interaction between big government and universities and big banks. But um, at places like uh, Purdue University, actually in my hometown in Indiana, they've, they've uh, tested, they pilot tested these income sharing agreements, which basically, instead of a student loan, you say... I'm going to major in this and you're going to pay, you're going to basically invest in me and pay my college education. And then I'm going to go out and make money and I'm going to give you back a percentage of um, the money that I'm making, but you, the investor are going to assume the risk. So if I crash and burn, right, just like this is like a stock, this is an equity rather than debt. Right? right, the investor is assuming the risk, and people don't get saddled with the right. student debt. Um, and it also really gives the right incentives to target areas where the payoff to education will be high. And there's no reason why philanthropists can't seed funds like this in inner-city, low-income neighborhoods. Um, and I've heard a lot of people on the left bash this idea as, you're giving people a portion of your money for as though right, they're the ones who want a portion of your money. You can't give an investor <laughs> a portion of your money. Uh, it actually really disappoints me because I think this is a really exciting decentralized um, possibility that solves a lot of problems. So Bert, um, I was going to say, and really quick, and Bernie is a lot more sophisticated than free college for everybody. And, say, and really quick, Bernie also, um, he started to talk about, and we're going to listen to this next clip here, about how he's going to be able to basically not only pay for all this universal uh, education, I almost said healthcare because that's another one of his policies, but no, he, he also sure. started to say how he's going to basically forgive all the student loan debt that currently exists. So let's listen to Bernie try to explain this. Of the cancellation of debt, which is my view. You got 45 million people. Um, who are dealing with debt. I'll never forget this. This is where it really hit me. I was in Burlington, Vermont, and I had a meeting on an issue, and a young woman comes up and she says, she's a doctor. She graduated medical school. She's very happy. She's practicing in a community health center, loves what she's doing. She said, Bernie, I gotta tell you though, I am $300,000 in debt for having gone to medical school. I couldn't believe it. I was in Iowa, a young woman, $400,000 in debt. This is not unusual for medical schools and, and dental schools. And, you know, ordinary people, $50,000, $100,000 for going to college or getting a master's degree. We promised these young people, we said, go to college, go out and get an education, you'll get decent paying jobs. Well, the answer is they have not been able to do that. So what we have proposed in one piece of legislation or two, actually, is to make public colleges and universities tuition-free, cancel all student debt in this country. That will cost $2.2 trillion, a lot of money, over a 10-year period. We do this through a tax on Wall Street speculation, which will bring in $2.4 trillion. We bailed out Wall Street 11 years ago, and by the way, these are crooks on Wall Street who engaged in illegal behavior. Taxpayers against my vote bailed them out. If we can bail out Wall Street, you know what? We can cancel student debt and provide public colleges and universities tuition free. 
When- so, <laughs> Max, so with that being said, um, first and foremost, I think what we were just talking about before that we played this rest of Bernie's clip was, you know, now with the edu- I mean, you, it's like you, you had the idea of what the, the video was. Um, but it's, it, Bernie is saying how these colleges are promising these people, you know, you're going to come to our college, you're going to go to all this debt, but you're going to have these great careers afterwards where you're going to make boatloads of money. So obviously one thing we discussed beforehand was the incentive for these colleges to, to basically help, if you will, fund these kids going through, but then to recoup on that based on the ability for the, the, the kid after they graduate to get a good paying job. But then, then Bernie decides to take it a step further and say, not only are we going to push for these universal health care, universal educations, but now we're going to have Wall Street um, and we're going to tax speculation on Wall Street to pay for a, a canceling of the debt for, for students who have already accumulated the was a two point some odd trillion dollars in student loan debt. Does this make sense, Max? No, uh, absolutely not. Now, I have, you know, I have heard um, from a lot of people in our kind of libertarian circles um, thoughts like, oh, well, these people got themselves into trouble. Why should we bail them out? And, you know, yes, of course, I do think that a lot of these people were ripped off and they were given predatory loans by a combination of, like we said, government, big universities and big banks. Now, you know, at this point, it shouldn't surprise anybody that I don't like blanket solutions very much. And um, and, and this, this sort of blanket debt forgiveness, I don't think is a good idea. Um, we don't want people to be in this kind of debt. And I think it's something that we could have a creative conversation about and take more seriously and something that, that you know, should be on my list to think about um, what kind of solutions there are to. But um, again, these blanket solutions are the problem. They're the way that we're stuck. And then to, to say, and this is the demagoguery coming back in again, then to say, we're going to, we're going to pay for this by taxing Wall Street speculators, right? These people who, um, you know, oh, well, nobody likes them. You know, they're, they're an easy to, uh, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to tax, you know, big business or big. It, it's the bad guy. It's the Darth Vader. It's, it's the, it's the evil guy we can go after. Populist way. It doesn't have squat to do with the student loan thing. Right. You're looking for the bad guy. You're looking for someone you can, you can, you know, say, look at how much better I am. It's like, it's like, you know, think of any great story that you've heard. It's always the underdog taking on the, the big, bad, corrupt, you know, bad guy. And it's the, the, the feeling of, oh, look at the, the good he brought to the world because he took down this bad guy. Um, but that's not the reality in terms of how our current system is set up. I mean, Pretty much, it's it, Bernie's trying to utilize government as one bad guy to take down another bad guy to make a, an even bigger bad guy, and that's and that's the part I don't think a lot of people realize is that this isn't you know Bernie's not the Robin Hood in this situation. He's he's the the the, the king. He's trying to get more money coming into the the, the the castle so he can pay for whatever he wants to do. And in some cases, it's his three homes. But I won't go there. Um, so <laughs> let's um let's listen to the last clip here, Max, because uh, we are getting short in time. And this is a uh, Bernie talking about um you know whenever it gets cold a socialist. So I want to let Bernie kind of explain um, what his reaction is to being called a socialist and, and all of his socialist policies. Right. Healthcare is a human right, not a privilege, a radical idea. I don't think it is. It's not. And the truth is, we are the only major country on earth. Many people don't know this. We're the only major country on earth not to guarantee healthcare to all people as a human right. And yet we end up spending almost twice as much per capita on healthcare. The function and you can argue with me if you want, but the function of the current healthcare system is not to provide quality care to all. It is to make tens of billions of dollars in profit for the drug companies and the insurance companies. Now, I I particularly chose this one clip. Now, let me say this first. When when he first started talking about being a socialist, he said, oh, I hate being compared to Nicolas Maduro and you know being a dictator and that kind of stuff. And he said, but the policies I'm promoting aren't aren't policies that people don't agree with. They're actually quite popular and they're being done throughout the world. Then he starts to refer to these, these, you know, universal healthcare um, policies. Now, one thing I think people seem to not grasp, and I think there's an issue from just the way it's explained is the idea of healthcare being a human right. So Max, I'll let you kind of give the, the economist perspective. Is healthcare a human right? Um, it's uh, 
I don't like classifying it in that way. I think that's too charged a term. Again, we want people to have good health care. We don't like that a poorer person is going to die 20 years before a richer person in some eventuality. That said, um, and, you know, you know, I love to, to challenge, um, you know, our own kind of circles and, and my libertarian colleagues. We need a sort of come to Jesus moment on health care because the problem is that he's talking about single payer health care. There would be so many problems with this, but the status quo is a mess, too. Um, even before Obamacare, after Obamacare. Um, so he and we need to get serious about what does a more free market based healthcare system look like? and go out and show people why that would be beneficial to them. Um, because, you know, it, it's only a matter of time when the only two choices are this plan that everybody is going to, you know, incorrectly evaluate by its aspirations versus the sort of twisted, ugly chimera of government <laughs> market that we have right now mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we're, that we, we need to offer uh, and talk to people about a coherent, more market-based choice. Well, I think that's the one thing, too, is people, um, we, we, and I say people born on the libertarian camp, and, and also I dare say even people in more conservative or Republican camps, yeah. is that they, they don't seem to be able to articulate the benefits of a free market healthcare system and instead do focus on the, you know, well, no, healthcare isn't a human right. Now, I, I think from a, a purely you know, logical perspective, anything that requires somebody else's labor cannot be a, a genuine right. Like if, if you were... Yes, yes. I, I like yeah. that formulation also. Yeah, and I think that's the way... We, we need to, to promote it is saying, well, listen, a right, you know, you have the right to, to breathe. You have the right to, to, to move freely. You, you have the right to eat food, like, but you don't have the right to be given food, to be guaranteed food. I mean, if, if we were to say at the very core state of nature that you had these rights, nature would laugh in your face because that's just not true. It's not a fundamental truth, but I think what we need to do is instead of focusing on saying, well, see, healthcare is not a right is saying, no, listen, Healthcare isn't a right, but we can provide better healthcare than saying what you're going to do in the universal healthcare of making it a quote unquote right. What we're saying is the free market has shown time and time again. You look at countries like Canada, or or you name the the, the, the socialist country, whether it's United Kingdom, Cuba, and so forth, where. Yeah, they have universal health care and their air quotes cost for health care is less per capita than the United States. But the quality of care is dramatically worse. And that's why there are people from Canada who make special trips to come to America to get procedures done when they can afford it, because they they would otherwise be either a waiting for months to get seen or B would be um, getting less quality care and overall would not be in a better position than they would be otherwise if they were to come to America and get the same exact procedure done in a much quicker and honestly, a much more, um, you know, help, uh, I say a, a best way to actually fix whatever the ailment may be. Um, it, so I'm, I'm glad that you went through all of that because too often as libertarians, I think we stop with the healthcare is not a human right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we end it there. And here's the situation. We're going to have an election between a progressive or democratic socialist candidate and a nationalist conservative candidate. Um, People can differ on this. To me, those are both about equally antithetical to my values. Um, Maybe we'll have Justin Amash, who I love, and that would be awesome. But let's face it, he's not going to be, you know, a candidate vying with the other two to win. And both of these nationalist and kind of democratic socialist platforms are telling people, you know, sometimes we characterize it as we're going to give you stuff, but they're telling people, there are problems right now, and we're going to solve them. They have bad ways yep. of solving those problems, and the whole conception of, you know, the centralized nation-state solving problems is in itself problematic. But we, as people supporting free markets, have to help people understand that why going more in that direction is going to help solve some of these problems is going to lead to more prosperity. A lot of times we like to say, see everything free markets have given you. Well, your iPhone, look at your iPhone, right? Right. And that's true. But when we stop there, people think all we're supporting is the status quo. Mm -hmm. And I'm not terribly into the status quo. Um, And 
I think we need to really, really have a conversation as, as, you know, I, I, we get into this, this morass of different words, but as people who support free markets of how do we explain to people why this works, why this leads to improvement. Um, and, and that's going to be a challenge. And, you know, I think this, you know, watching this election is going to be an utter disaster. The only way I find it tolerable to watch is to pretend that it's like a Christopher Guest ensemble <laughs> mockumentary, like Spinal Tap or A Mighty Wind or, you know, Waiting for Guffman, where you have all these zany characters kind of going about. But, um, but this is what our system is producing. And it's pretty scary that there's what, 21 candidates right now. And I don't think I could vote for any of them. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, ultimately I'm not someone even as a libertarian who thinks that, um, the most important way forward eventually is going to be to elect a libertarian president. That would be great. Uh, but at the same time, this is an opportunity as we're presented with this utter disaster of an election to, um, to start communicating to people that this, you know, that libertarianism, free markets are, um, are a philosophy of inclusion, of caring, of prosperity for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, you know, people, my friends on the left look at me like I'm crazy when I say I'm a libertarian because I want to help solve things like poverty. Um, and I think I can do it better than you can do it. And I really believe that. And um, getting getting this, you know, disaster of a system with the federal government out of the way is what we have to do. And we're going to have to just start showing that some of those private solutions work better than the government. And that, yeah. I think, is the best hope for a way forward. Oh, no, I'm right there with you. Um, so you had to give Bernie a, a score on a scale of A to F for his, uh, his appearance on Joe Rogan. What would you give him? Um, so let's, let's take my philosophy out of this. I'll give him like an A minus. Honestly, mm-hmm. I thought that my, my like best guess probability of seeing a president Sanders went from before that interview, 5% to after that interview, about 20%. Oof. Um, I thought I, despite disagreeing with almost everything he said, I thought he did well in that interview. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have to get really serious about, um, about combating these ideas, not just in a sort of holier than thou kind of dismissing, laughing at them kind of way, but taking them seriously and picking them apart. And that's less fun. That's fewer high fives online. But, um, you know, it, it, it's if we don't, we risk real damage to the country. Oh, no, 100%. And hopefully, um, you know, this this episode is, is a great tool for people who, you know, they, they watch the, the or they listen to the interview with, with Joe Rogan and Bernie Sanders, and they're, they're looking for some just, you know, a, a thoughtful response or analysis of what was being said. But you're right. You're 100% right, is that if we don't take what, you know, what Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren and all these other leftists are, are promoting seriously, we, we are just setting ourselves up for failure because there's a lot of people out there you know, who are taking them seriously. And, and, you know, for all of his positives, people like Joe Rogan giving these people the platform and then having them on the show, not pushing them and not challenging them is, it can be a little dangerous. So, and not, I'm not saying I don't, I want Joe Rogan to be centric. I can already hear the libertarian and caps out there who are saying, look, he wants internet censorship. No, I don't. I'm saying that we need to speak up louder and we need to go out of our way to make sure we're, we're correcting the message and, and trying to do our part to make our voices as loud, if not louder. So, just get your voice louder, Max Gulker. Where can folks go ahead and find you on social media so they can stay up to bridge on all the happenings in economics and uh, all the happenings over at AIER with you, Mr. Tucker, and, uh, of course, my good friend, uh, Clovia Nagnos. Uh, and, and many, many more. And I'll say Jeffrey has assembled quite a stable of writers from academia and other places. Um, the amount of – there are some days when I'm like, do we have too much new content on here? It's incredible. <laughs> um so AIER.org is your first stop. You click on the articles link. You'll see what we've got. Um, we think we're producing the best economic commentary out there. 
Um, as far as um, me personally and my quips on social media, uh, you can always find me at, at Max G, M-A-X-G-A-I-E-R. That's my Twitter handle. That's not a easy Twitter handle to remember, so let me say it one more time, at Max G-A-I-E-R. Um, had all sorts of adventures on Twitter in the last day, but you know, those are, <laughs> those are, you know, trolling things that you learn from. Um, but, um, but I would love people to connect with me. Um, that article about, um, paying for college, I think is a really good discussion piece. And, and I'd love to get that out to people. And, um, as always just really appreciate the opportunity to, um, talk to your listeners. Oh, no, for sure. And I'll make sure I include all those uh, links, not only to AIER, but also to your social media in the show notes, because I want my my listeners here to get more engaged with my audience or with my my, my guests, because, I mean, Max, you are you're one of quite literally dozens of awesome guests I've had in my show. But hey, I've, I've said to you privately, and I'm going to say it now for the audience to hear is you're going to be more frequently appearing on the Brian Nichols show, especially when we're talking about issues of economics. I think, you know, having your perspective is going to be very important, uh, especially when you can break down uh, on a policy perspective. So I I cannot thank you uh, enough, but also thank, you know, Jeffrey and Chloe and the rest of the team at AIR for all the hard work you guys are doing. Um, you know, th- I, I'm looking forward to having Jeffrey and Chloe both on my show again in the near future. But but uh, Max, I'm looking forward to having you coming back on the show and doing all the, the great work you're doing over there. And hopefully we can help promote some more of it. So um, with that, folks, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Nichols Show today. And if you enjoyed today's episode, number one, obviously, I want you to go ahead and share with your family and friends. Um, but also, if you could go over and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Um, five stars, please, would be great. Uh, but also, if you could, please take a moment and share this with at least five friends. That's, that's my challenge to you this week. And, and I would specifically go after people who you know listen to Joe Rogan because you know they listen to this interview, especially if they're on the left, and, and just kind of give them an alternative way of looking at the, the issues as they were brought up there by Bernie Sanders. Um, and as for me, if you want to follow me on social media at B. Nichols Liberty, both on uh, Facebook and on Twitter, Twitter is definitely where I'm more active for like back and forth commentary. Um, but I've been doing a lot of fire memes folks over at Facebook. So you want some fire memes? Not as good as Liberty memes and not as good as the big, the big channel We Are Libertarians memes. But hey, I, I dare say they're at least in that like, you know, B plus area right now. So just come over there and you'll watch us grow over there on Facebook. Um, and of course, the one-time PayPal donation link is in the show notes. So please swing over there, click that one-time PayPal donation link, whatever you can do, five bucks, 500 bucks, that'd be cool. But five bucks, whatever it may be, I greatly appreciate it. That's how we keep the lights on here at the Brian Nichols Show and having great guests like Max Gulker coming on the show. So with that, folks, thank you so much for joining us here on the Brian Nichols Show for another fun-filled episode. It's Brian Nichols signing off for Max Gulker from AIER. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.